Hi, I'm Sissy Graham Lynch. Welcome to Fearless, helping you have a fearless faith in a compromising culture. Welcome back to another episode of Fearless. And I'm so excited you've joined me today because I think today's episode is going to be incredible. Over the course of the last 12 months, many of you have sent me questions, comments, and concerns regarding the church and some of the divisions and philosophies and theologies that the church seems to be opening their doors to and adopting. And to talk about some of these concerns that we're seeing, I've invited two guys that I have kind of gone to their podcast as educational over the last six months, and that is Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker of the Just Thinking Podcast. These are two men who know God's word, that they have studied God's word, that they can have the these conversations and address these issues from a biblical standpoint. And I'm so excited and honored that they would join me on today's episode of Fearless. It's a long episode. I'm going to warn you, but stay with it, please, because it is worth it. With so many of you, you have concerns. I've challenged you over the course of the last few months. We have to dig deep. It's not always the most fun topics to talk about, but they are so important. And I promise you, you will enjoy and learn from these two men. When the beginning of this year started, I said, if I could interview two people, I named the Just Thinking guys, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker of the Just Thinking podcast. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much. Hey, Cece, thanks for having us. Well, I have so much enjoyed your podcast over the last couple of months. And I have pointed so many people to it, like, listen to this podcast, listen to it, because you two are men who are bold. You're unashamed of the gospel. You discuss and confront cultural and social and political issues that we are facing today uh, as a society, as a culture, um, and as a country. And I'm just so thankful because you're always laser focused on scripture. So welcome. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Excited about uh, getting a chance to meet you and talk with you live and talk with your audience uh, about these incredibly important issues. You know, normally when I have a guest, I'll kind of do a long monologue. I'll introduce them. But since there's two of you, and if I did that, that would be a lot of me talking and y'all are the guests. I want both of you to do uh, the talking. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Virgil Walker. Uh, I was a... a uh, discipleship pastor at Westside Church for a long time, for about six years here in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I, where uh, I picked up the moniker Omaha on the on the podcast. Uh, Daryl and I have been working together for the last three years um, on on the issues you mentioned. We're looking at uh, cultural issues, issues of, of of politics and the like through a biblical uh, lens, and so that's kind of that's kind of the background. I currently. Uh, I'm working for uh, G3 Ministries. It's a ministry uh, uh, under the direction of uh, Dr. Josh Bice. It's a conference-based ministry that is beginning to create a lot of rich content, curriculum, and different things that, that are helpful uh, to, um, to lay people as well as to pastors to equip them for the works of ministry. But yeah, enjoying that and enjoying working with Daryl. And I'm Daryl Harrison. Uh, I am the, uh, as Virgil was said, I'm the Batman to his Robin on the uh, Just Thinking podcast. 
uh, the lead host on the podcast. Um, I, uh, in my day job, uh, when I'm not working with Verge, um, I am the Dean of Social Media here at Grace to You, which is the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur here in Valencia, California. Uh, my wife, Melissa, and I uh, relocated from Atlanta to Valencia, California in 2019 uh, to come out here and uh, join the team at Grace to You. Um, and as Virgil said, been uh, partnering with him on the Just Thinking podcast for the last three years. We uh, just surpassed 2.1 million downloads of our episodes. So we're uh, thankful to the Lord for that. And uh, Sissy, so thankful for your courage as well in, uh, in, in, in being bold and confronting these issues because unfortunately not every, not every believer um, um, has that kind of boldness these days and we need more of it. So thank you again for having us on with you. Well, um, I'm so excited. Like I said, I feel like I'm with rock stars right now um, for just the Christian faith, because, you know, my heart with Fearless has always been to encourage people to know what they believe and why they believe it. Um, I really saw friends struggling for a long time of how to navigate their faith through a forever compromising culture. And so that is the heart here. And especially when this year got started and what we've been facing here, especially as a country, and seeing that, you know, a lot of Christians were looking kind of at things that they've been hearing in the church, pastors that they had been following for so long. And they're like, you know what? I'm not sure if I really agree with the things that they're saying. That's not really what they were teaching maybe 10 years ago. And there was just confusion. And I think that, you know, a lot of people look at the word of fear of, over the last couple of months or the last year. And I think that is because there was confusion. We didn't have a sound mind. So we had the spirit of fear and there's a confusion on so many topics. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. (laughs) Everybody's confused, whether it's from science to COVID to politics and the election. And that's where um, I looked back last year, especially last summer. And before I start asking you guys some questions, it was a, a verse that I was studying Jeremiah last summer. And we can all remember the state of where this country was. And I um, first I read in chapter Jeremiah four, and it said in truth, in justice and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him. And I thought, well, yes, in truth and justice and righteousness. And we know justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. But it's like we've redefined those terms. And then it was um, in Jeremiah uh, six. It said, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. It said that they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. And I thought that's what we see happening today. We saw so many pastors scrambling in the last year, trying to be a voice, trying to help the brokenness of this world but they were dealing with it superficially because I think they've redefined the terms or maybe they're going off the way that the world defines them. And that's why we are going to start with the basics. And I know that y'all are good at defining the terms that is so important. And tell us why to the audience, it is important to define the terms before we start talking about any other points. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump in here and say one of the things that, that we really pride ourselves in um, and, 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 I, and I mean that in, in the most humble way, just from a standpoint of a, of a focus for us, a focus for Daryl and I, and has been ever since we've connected, is to make sure that terms are defined. I think in a culture where people are, are, are taking words like marriage and redefining them, they're taking words like male and female 
and redefining them. It is critical, even more so than ever, uh, to make sure that we're properly defining what we mean. I, I, I did a, I was preaching a sermon this past Sunday, sissy, where I, I, I said, I, I said the phrase man is sinful. And, and I recognize in the current climate in which we're in, culturally speaking, I needed to take a moment to define what I meant by man and what I meant by sin. And so when, when you're exegeting texts of scripture and, and exegeting your, your thought processes, the, those kinds of assumptions that we make because of the Judeo-Christian framework in which we live, uh, we can't assume that any longer. Uh, we're, we're really in an environment, uh, we're, we're, we're in an Acts 17 environment. Uh, where where Paul is 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 you know looking about and recognizing that that there are all these gods that are being worshipped and he has to explain who the one true and living God is and he starts out by defining him uh, biblically speaking from the very beginning this is the God who created the heavens and the earth and uh, we we're in a time and a culture where defining terms is critical because what's happening is culture is redefining uh, terms uh, that we haven't properly defined and they're using. Uh, worldly philosophies uh, and and corrupt ideologies in order to do so. And so it's important for us to go back to the framework of of our creator uh, and identify what he means uh, when he's spoken to us clearly through his word as to what he means uh, and how he's defining things like sin, uh, like male, female, like marriage issues, like human race, uh, all those kinds of terms that now get bantered about in ways that that they were never intended to be bantered about in. It's important for the believer to get anchored in that way. Yeah, and Sissy, uh, you brought the term justice and what you've been studying, Jeremiah. Obviously, the book of Jeremiah has a lot to say about that. And justice is one of those terms, as Virgil just said, it's it's become one of the more corrupted, misused, misapplied, misunderstood terms within the church today, uh, largely because of these external worldly ideologies and philosophies that we, to be honest with you, are allowing uh, to encroach upon us uh, in the church. You know, we often say on our podcast that the reason we take so much time, one reason our episodes are relatively lengthy compared to other uh, podcasts is because we take the time to define terms. We've repeatedly said when you use the world's terms, you end up fighting the battle on the world's turf. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. use the world's terms, you're going to fight the battle on the world's turf. And you're going to lose that battle every time. And Virgil bringing up uh, marriage is one example. Now, God is sovereign over everything that occurs in his universe. So I'm never going to say that we've lost the battle on marriage. We will never lose that because marriage will never change its biblical definition. It will never have a different construct than what God designed it for, regardless of how the culture uses it. Mm-hmm. We will never lose that battle because God doesn't lose battles. Okay, but it's important for us as believers to be able to push back on the redefinition of these terms. But in order for us to do that, we have to be uh, fluent on what the terms mean biblically for ourselves. What we're finding is that's not the case in, in, in many areas within the church. It should be the case, but it's not. Uh, so, again, we take the time on our podcast to define terms, to exegete terms. And then uh, it's like deconstructing a brick wall. You take it down brick by brick and then you rebuild it brick by brick uh, before we even start making our argument. 
Yeah, we're, we're definitely allowing the world to define it and we're arguing on their terms, just like you said. And, you know, they've taken these like social norms when they have no moral authority to define them. And then we are allowing them to define it. And then we're playing by kind of their game a little bit. But as we get into the first question, a coworker told me that Reddit has this series called Tell Me Like I'm Five series. So that's mm. what I want y'all to do. I want these, I have listeners here at Fearless. Um, I've men and women, but you know, mostly women. And these are mamas who have woken up. I said, 2020 revealed a lot about things. It revealed a lot about the church and the country, but mama bears have woken up and they're ready. You know, they want to fight for this next generation. They want to be a voice. And, um, but some of them can be so intimidated by these conversations like theology. And, but this is something we're all to have a voice in. We can't, um, you know, it can be, Believe it or not, even though I was born with the name Graham, you know, I wasn't born with the Bible memorized and all this book of knowledge. I, I have to learn it. And it's hard for me. Sometimes with your podcast, I have to go back and listen to it three or four times to make sure I grasp it. So let's start with the basics because these people, they really do want to learn. So one thing that is, uh, you know, maybe for years, it's been around for years, but it was really in the academic world but now we see it infiltrated everywhere. Maybe infiltration is the wrong word, but it's in our government, it is in our schools, it's in, in our churches, and that's critical race theory. And I am shocked by how many Christians still don't understand what critical race theory is. I am not a pro at describing it. We've talked about it briefly here on Fearless, but let's start with the basics of this, of what we're hearing. What is critical race theory? Um, two things, one, to kind of tee up what you shared, um, Critical race theory is something we're hearing everywhere. I mean, you turn on the nightly news, uh, you listen to your favorite, even even Fox News. Uh, Sean Hannity is talking about critical race theory. The president is talking about critical race. I mean, everyone is talking about critical race theory. And it's as if this thing came out from nowhere and showed up on the scene yesterday. Uh, when in actuality, when you go back and kind of look at it from a historical standpoint, it really came on the scene in the, in the late 70s, in the, mid, in the early 70s, rather. Um, what you had in that time and environment was you had critical theory, which was used in law. Uh, it was the idea that folks were looking at the law and trying to determine uh, outcomes. They were looking at what was happening uh, as a result of racial differences uh, within uh, the, the, the judicial system. And their thought process was there's got to be some bias bias attached to it. So out from that comes not critical theory comes critical race theory. Critical race theory would be attached to the, the, the black power movement of its time, the black liberation theology movement of its time during that, that late 60s, early 70s timeframe and began kind of marching through. You mentioned it, Sissy, in your comments. It started marching through education. It started marching through every area of, 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 of power where power structures were. And what it does is it holds a number of presuppositions positions. Uh, the, the idea that every interaction is one where race, where, where, let me say it this way, every interaction between someone of different ethnicities is a, is an interaction of power, uh, one having power and one without power. And those, and those power dynamics are constructed according to critical race theory on the basis of one's ethnicity and whether or not they are an active participant in the majority culture or they're a participant in the minority culture. It, it further distinguishes that once they're separated in those ways, that the power dynamic for the majority culture, and in, in America it's the white culture, is in an 
is is in a position of being an oppressor and that the one who's in the minority status, those who are people of color, POCs, uh, people of color, are those who are in a a, a position of being oppressed. And so it, it puts that lens on every interaction, on every facet of, of culture, uh, of, of, of pop culture, uh, of, of, of uh, education, of economics, uh, especially in the area of, um, of, of, of criminality and, and the judiciary, and says there's a power dynamic at place that is in favor of one race over another always. Even in our interaction, critical race theory, we look at our interaction. You've got, Sissy, you've got two black men on your on your show as you brought them in as the experts. But critical race theor- a critical race theorist would look not at, at our interaction not as one of, of, of equals coming coming to a conversation with with good intention, but that there was some way, shape, or form that there was some actual benefit that you were going to receive on the basis of your ethnicity and race that was that was uh, that was advantaged. And that somehow by you bringing two black men onto your show, there was racist intent and motivation in some form of our conversation. So my point in bringing that up is critical race theory colors the lens of every interaction within culture. Hmm. Yeah, see, see, Virgil's not exaggerating there. Critical race theory applies to every single interaction within the society uh, today. And I want to take you back even further than the 70s, because we know from scripture, right? In Ecclesiastes, the writer says that there is nothing new under the sun, right? Critical race theory is not new, okay? Critical race theory is a derivative, it is an outgrowth of a broader worldview known as critical theory, okay? So there's critical theory, then there's all these tentacles that grow out of critical theory. But to understand critical theory, you have to go all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, the Institute for Social Research was begun by Max Horkheimer, who was a German Marxist. Okay, Horkheimer uh, coined the term critical theory. Okay, better known as the Frankfurt School. So, if you have, if you ever heard the term Frankfurt School, think critical theory. If you ever hear critical theory, think Frankfurt School. The school was based in Frankfurt, Germany, and Horkheimer gathered a group of uh, other German Marxists in an attempt to develop Marxist studies, Marxist principles, Marxist philosophies, and have those uh, philosophies and precepts and principles applied there in Germany. However, Hitler shot that down. Now, Now, that will tell you how bad these ideas were if Hitler, so Hitler got the Frankfurt School shut down, okay, in the late 19... 37, and the school moved to the United States, where it is now currently housed at Columbia University in New York, okay? So your listeners, your viewers, I want them to understand fundamentally, number one, that critical race theory is nothing new. It is an outgrowth of a decades-old worldview and ideology that originated out of Marxism called critical theory. Now, your critical theorists, your critical race theories don't want you to understand the Marxist origins of critical race theory, but Horkheimer and others were pupils, students of Karl Marx um, and, and, and other atheist uh, uh, individuals who developed this idea of critical theory back in the late 30s. And all we're doing right now is seeing sort of a new 
iteration of it. But this idea as a whole is not new. You know, I'm sitting here, I've been wanting to take notes, but I'm watching you. I'm going to have to go back to the own podcast so I can take notes and learn. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I'm sitting here listening, I'm like, oh, I know I got to ask the next question um, <laughs> as I'm trying to learn from you. Okay, so here's what critical race theory is. Now, how do we look at the Bible and apply scripture uh, to combat critical race theory? It's important that you know where the origins of this stuff comes from. But at the same time, and we also need to understand the practical applications in the day-to-day because this stuff, listen, students in school right now, are be, you, their kids, your listeners who have children who are in school are being taught this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, they, they, the, the educators make no bones about what they're teaching your children. So it's important for you to know the, the historical origins of this. Your, your question specifically was, how, how do we deal with this biblically? I would argue that we have to understand uh, proper biblical categories. Hmm. It, it starts there. We have to understand the, because what, what critical theory is trying to do is it's trying to reframe and recategorize us into groups, the, the powerful, the powerless, those who are oppressed, those who are the oppressors, those who are white, those who are, are black. They're, they're, they're giving this false idea that there are races of People, Samuel Morton's craniometry of the late 1800s with the idea that 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 specific races of people uh, come from specific sizes of their skull. This is all a false idea about races. We have to go back to what the Bible actually says. Critical race theory sets up. So let me me lay it out. Critical race theory sets up a false um, anthropology big word to mean a false idea of, of who man is. It sets up a false um, harmardiology, big fancy word for a, a false idea of what sin actually is. It sets up a false soteriology, a fancy word to say how we are saved, how we are reconciled to God and one another. So all of these things are, are false ideas that are set up by critical race theorists, by critical theorists. So we have to go back to our Bible and understand who is man. I was at a church and, I, and, and just walking people through Genesis chapter one, verse 27, right? That in the beginning, God created, created man in his image and likeness. I mean, something as simple as that we've kind of glossed over. But what we need to understand from that is that mankind is created by God, is an image bearer of God, and that there's one human race, right? Acts 17, 26, that, that God from one man creates every ethnicity, every nation under heaven. And so if we understand that, we don't get caught up in the idea of separate divisions of groups of people, one's oppressed, one's oppressor. We understand the nature of sin, right? We understand Romans chapter five, which is going to explain to us that from one man, sin enters the world. And through that one man, death enters and affects all of mankind. So we're, we're going to understand just basic biblical ideas that we've got to not only know what it says, but we also need to know what it means by what it says. Yes. Yeah, so, so let me just build on what Virgil just brilliantly laid out there. I think, you know, Virgil said, you know, we need to understand proper biblical categories. And I think for the professing Christian, understanding those biblical categories begins with the conviction that scripture is sufficient. Come on, man. You have to believe that scripture, first of all, speaks to these issues, because if you don't believe that, then it's no, there's no need for you to, to take that extra step of trying to understand what these categories are. We 
scripture is sufficient from texts like 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul writes that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and correction. So we know this. Now, you, you add that to the mandate and the exhortation that every Christian has to be ready to offer an apologetic to anyone who asks you why you believe. So all that starts with a conviction, not just a belief, you see, because you can tell when a belief is a conviction by carrying out what you believe. You see, until you're, until you're forced to give evidence of what you believe, it's not a conviction yet. Hmm. So what, we're, what, what we help our listeners do on our, on our podcast and hopefully helping your listeners as well is to understand these categories and to understand that, yes, Scripture does speak to these things. It does speak to these things. Like Virgil said, it does speak to the doctrine of man. It gives you a biblical anthropology, a biblical homardiology. And I would add one extra one is a biblical eschatology, because when you look at worldviews like critical race theory, critical race theory is a dogma. It is a, it is a set of beliefs. It is a set of precepts, a set of principles that will have you believe that essentially you can create heaven on earth. Mm. Now, they don't speak of crit- critical race theories in terms of in biblical parameters. So you will not hear them use um, uh, biblical terms and biblical vernacular because, Sissy, as you alluded to earlier, when you go out and you look at the resources that are available on critical theory and critical race theory, critical social theory, critical gender theory, these resources are all written by higher echelon academics. They're written by academics for academics. Now, why is that? Because educational institutions are the pipeline through which this worldview is fed. Amen. From postgraduate level all the way down to the kindergarten and preschool level now. Go out on Amazon.com, do a search on critical race theory. I tell you, every resource out there is probably written by a PhD. Mm. So we appreciate, Sissy, what you said early on about us sort of breaking this down so that your listeners can understand it as if we were five years old. The challenge there is that when you look at this literature and you read these materials, they're all written by doctors. They're all by PhDs and social educators and sociologists that use this sort of multisyllabic higher echelon terminology. I think for one purpose is just to keep you confused. And it is confusing. The first time I Googled it months ago, I, you know, and then parts of you like, Hmm, that kind of sounds not too bad until you just think about it. You do some critical thinking. And I think that's why a lot of people just kind of stay away from it because they don't understand it. Well, that's, that's where people like you and Virgil and I come in uh, to help do some of that work uh, for our listeners, because my heart goes out to them. Uh, You know, we're as, as, I don't know what this episode is going to air, but right now we're working on, Uh, the next episode of our podcast that we're going to release, which is going to be on critical race theory. And the research that we're having to do to prepare for that episode is mammoth. I mean, it's a behemoth uh, load of work uh, because the, the, the ideas and ideals have to be so deconstructed. They have to be so parsed out to uh, uh, recommunicate them in just plain layman's English, which is really tough to do. Uh, it is doable, but it's, 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 it's tough to do. And then one last thing, Sissy, and I'll turn it back over to you. 
Uh, one thing your listeners and viewers need to understand when you hear the term critical race theory, the word critical there does not mean analytical. It means the opposite of analytical. What critical race theories are trying to do, they are critiquing, as Virgil said, they're, they're critiquing these legal uh, decisions. They're, they're critiquing American jurisprudence to find evidence and loopholes so that they can employ and impart their Marxist uh, template onto those rulings so as to find rationale and reasons to uh, deem them uh, deliberately uh, prejudicial, racist, or uh, for the purpose of sort of subordinating uh, ethnic minorities uh, under white oppression. So never think, when you hear the word critical, do not think that it means analytical. It does not. It means the exact opposite. I, I, I want to add to that two things. One, he's spot on, absolutely spot on with regard to the issue of critical. Not only is it not a, a, a critique or, or an examination, because that's not what's meant by critical. But the second thing is it cannot withstand your critical thinking applied to it. It cannot withstand it. So what it, so what it defaults to automatically is, is an emotional argument based upon a victimhood disposition. Mm-hmm. So it, it can't, it can't you, you begin to look at one of the things, the other thing you said earlier, which I, which I caught, I thought about because I had this same conversation just, a, just a week ago. It sounds almost right. Right. Well, well we, we know from Charles Spurgeon that discernment is knowing is, is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Mm-hmm. And far too often we've been duped by the almost right. Uh, and that's what I, that's what I'm seeing. A lot of a lot of well-intentioned churchgoers are being duped by what almost sounds right. Their thought process is, well, I, I think I know about the history of racism in America. And so they, they, they effectively apply what happened historically to a particular group of people to every situation where there's a disparity. And you cannot do that. Every situation where there's a disparity does not automatically point to a systemic injustice. There are a number of other decisions that led to me having as much money or as little money that's in my, my current bank account. And, not, and, not, and, all, and none of them, truth be told, had anything to do with, hap- with what happened to ancestors of mine 300 years ago. Not a bit of it. It was, I spent too much. I bought this much. I didn't, I didn't save like I needed to. Uh, I'm, I'm married. I'm married. Well, my wife does well with money. I don't, you know, all of those factors are in play, but when you examine everything through the lens of critical race theory, there's only uh, the only way that you can view those things is through the prism of power structures. And so it begins to cloud the view and, uh, and, and doesn't allow you to make any, any decision clearly. So as you were, you're mentioning the church. Like when I look at millennials, I think their intentions are, they're trying, they're trying to help. They're trying to bring a voice. They're trying to heal brokenness. And, um, you know, as we looked at critical race theory and we said infiltrated, I think I've heard Mr. Daryl say it hasn't infiltrated. It has been welcomed like yes. arms wide open. And yeah. as you guys are going around the country in what ways, like practical ways, because I want people to be able to register who are listening. Like, yes, I have seen that, you know, because we're just we got a big conversation going on. What are ways that we are seeing this like totally welcomed in the church? 
Yeah, you know, see, see, one of the ways that I'm seeing that is in churches increasingly resorting to pragmatism. They're increasingly resorting to pragmatic ways of um, 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 addressing these sort of felt needs and then sort of uh, using that as a, this pragma, pragmatic uh, uh, solutions as a substitute for what the gospel is. Listen, fundamentally, the gospel is a message. It's not a movement. It's not a movement. So mm. when you look at the gospel for what it truly is, the gospel is a message of redemption from our sins, our sins. Uh, one, one biblical example that I love, love, love to go back to is a situation involving John the Baptist where he's in prison. He was imprisoned for telling the truth to Herod and his uh, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. He told the truth. He was put in prison. But understand this, when John was in prison, just before he's beheaded, he sends two of his disciples off to ask Jesus, listen, I just have to know this before I leave this world. Are you the, the expected one or are we to wait for someone else? Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist by those same two disciples that John the Baptist sent to him. He said, go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard, he said, you've seen the blind receive sight. You've seen the lame walk. You've seen the deaf hear. And Jesus saved the best for last. We should not miss the order of things that Jesus lists these in. He saves for last, not that the poor have been fed, although he did feed the poor. Not that the poor had been healed, although he did heal the sick. Not that the poor all had jobs. Not, not that the poor all had nice homes to live in. Not that the poor all had uh, nice clothes to wear. He said, no, you go and tell John that the poor have had the gospel preached to them. Because even in his Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he was talking about souls. Hmm. He wasn't talking about economic uh, depravity, economic poverty, material poverty, mater lack of material wealth. Jesus knew that you can feed the poor, you can clothe the poor, you can house the poor, you can give the the poor good jobs. You can cancel the poor the poor uh, student student loan debt. You can do all that, but if you do, if you feed them, close them, house them, cancel all their debt, and they go to hell, then what have you accomplished? Nothing. You've accomplished nothing. So for these uh, uh, these young image bearers of God, for these young image bearers of God in that category. And I hate these categories, but the category of millennial for those young image bearers of God, my counsel to them is to it goes back to what Virgil said earlier. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to understand, just like Paul writes here in Romans eight, verse 20. They have to understand that the creation was subjected to futility and hope that the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That is the problem we face in this world, that this entire creation, this entire world has been subjected to corruption. We know in 1 John 5, 19, John writes that, and we know that this world lies in the power of the evil one. So we have to have a theology, a theological worldview of what we're seeing if we capture what we're seeing through the parameters of what scripture says, then we can address these issues biblically, but we should never think that applying a social gospel, a social justice, um, a, a social uh, a pragmatic uh, approach to these uh, felt needs 
are going to ultimately resolve anything because it's, as, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.13, as a church, we are to be looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And that is not going to happen in the world we have now. Hmm. No, I, let me let me jump in and add to what you said, because I, I want to go back to your question. What, what are we seeing in the church? How, how is this kind of manifesting? And, and, and Daryl did a fantastic job of giving you the, the, the world tour. He started with the fact that, that this was we, we've identified we're, we're more inclined to, to attach ourselves to pragmatism. Let me t- let me talk about some of the ways we began to see this early on. Early on, Daryl and I were doing episodes where where we would get an article where this church uh, was had this uh, this idea about how many uh, black faces were supposed to be in the audience, how many uh, Hispanic faces were supposed to be in the audience, how many how many white faces were supposed to be in the audience, how many women were supposed to be in the audience. And so what churches were doing is they, they gathered together, wringing their hands about who was supposed to be in the church <laughs> and trying to figure out how they can change the, the, the ethnic makeup of their that church. Was, that was our woke worship episode, Verge. They were trying to figure out how they should do this. And so one of the things that Daryl and I talked about during that episode in particular was the fact that it's interesting that only white pastors seem to carry this weight. In, in other words, I could never go to an all black church and try the same kind of thing and go, you know what? This is, this is homogeneity here. This is, this is all black church and have the pastor leave there wringing his hands, trying to figure out how many white people he yeah. can get at that church, how many mm-hmm. Hispanic people he can get at yeah. that church and the like that that's never going to happen. And so we're trying to we're trying to do something unique that God has already preordained before the foundation of the world. If you believe what Ephesians chapter one says, that, 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 he, that he's chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we would just go and declare a message of the gospel and allow those who he's called to come into the church. And so we, we that's one of the things we see. Another thing we saw was uh, MLK 50. I'll not mention names, but you had a pastor who stood up on, during the MLK 50 and said, I would hire, when it comes to hiring practices, I would hire a black seven rather than an Anglo eight, right? So that's, that's seen as benevolent and kind. Oh, that's so sweet. If I, if I, 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 I've said this to Daryl and to many others since. If I'd worked for the person who said that, on the day he stood up and said that, and I was in his ministry, I would be hot. I would be angry because the message that he just sent to everybody, when they come back to the church, if I'm the lone black guy, is that I was the black seven he hired rather than the Anglo eight. And I got news for you. I'm a black 10. So I would have, I'd have knocked out everybody to begin with from the jump. So the, the fact that that was the, the thought process and that was benevolent and kind and that's patronizing beyond measure. You see it. I'll, I'll give you one more example. You see it in in music choice. Oh, we, we got to have some more kind of black gospel kind of, you know, and so they're, they're making decisions about worship as if the music is supposed to appeal to the person in the pew rather than the music appealing and honoring the triune God of the universe. And so those are, those are some practical ways that you see that played out. And it seems benevolent. It seems nice, but it's, a, it's actually condescending. 
Yeah, very yeah, much so. I've seen pastors and churches that I've visited that they're more concerned with diversity or create creating diversity than preaching just the simple truth and the simple gospel. Yeah, that's, that's what we call manufactured diversity. That's manufactured Explain diversity. Explain that. Yeah, manufactured diversity is when you use pragmatic efforts to uh, uh, make things different uh, aesthetically. Let me put it that way on the outside. Specifically, though, uh, in terms of you're, ch- you're trying to change the uh, major current skin tone of your congregation to a different skin tone of your congregation. So uh, manufactured diversity would be uh, like a church taking on outreach efforts. So for example, a predominantly white congregation would say, hey, we need to, uh, we need to talk to this uh, predominantly black congregation, congregation on the others, across the railroad tracks and see if we can just merge together. In the spirit of social uh, justice and racial reconciliation, we need to see if we can merge our two congregations together. So that's one one example of manufactured diversity. Uh, but see, w- when it comes to manufactured diversity, since what that accomplishes is very shallow evidence of unity. Because listen, the church is defined. The church biblically is defined by believers. There's not a single unbeliever in the church. Okay, you may have some people who pretend they're believers, some people who think they're saved, but they're not. But the church is only comprised of genuine, regenerate believers. Okay, now you can have, let's say, for instance, let's take a real time example our conversation here right now via this Zoom call. Here I am on this Zoom call with Sissy. I'm one ethnicity, Sissy is another. Someone might be able to say, just look at this aesthetically on the outside. Say, wow, that's that's great diversity there. They got unity going on. They're having a great conversation. But see, what what no one can say about me, uh, sissy, is they can't tell you what I think about you in my heart. So as to see what I really think about this white woman behind the microphone in this upper uh, this square box on the upper left corner. And see, that's what happens when you try to force uh, diversity. So what matters fundamentally is. Do these different, these varying ethnic groups believe in the Lord Jesus? Mm. That's question number one. If they don't, you're not my brother. You're not my sister. I don't care what your ethnicity is. So at best, manufactured diversity accomplishes aesthetic uh, achievements and goals that may look good on a billboard, but unity comes from within the heart. Okay, and it's the unity of the Holy Spirit as he regenerates us and brings us to faith in Christ that brings about, that brings to fruition that spiritual unity from the heart, that spiritual unity from the heart. And then you get the ethnic diversity that is spoken of in Revelation 7 as a result of the Holy Spirit doing his work in the hearts of people who look like me on the outside, who people like Virgil, and then people who look like you. That's how that happens. Add to that the, the the idea, and we've gotten this from Hollywood. Every Hollywood movie that comes out, like you have a superhero movie, right? You have to have the woman, you have to have the black, the Hispanic, the white, the Asian, and so now you know that they're a power team because we got every ethnicity represented. As if for some odd reason, ethnic diversity as an ends is somehow a virtue. Hmm. And, and, and there's, there's nothing virtuous in and of itself about levels of melanin in the skin. It makes absolutely- A virtue that, a virtue that you can take credit for, Virg. <laughs> you can't take credit for that, you mean? You can't take credit. And that's what, 
that's what's so nonsensical about this, sissy, is that Virgil's exactly right. It's a great point, first. So not only do we uh, deem ethnicity to be a virtue, we take credit for it. Right. We take credit for that virtue as if we had anything to do with it. And that's that's one of the silliest, and I would just say stupidest, uh, attitudes that you can have when it comes to this issue of, of uh, ethnic diversity. Uh, according to Acts 17, 26, it is clear that God made from one man, that is Adam, every nation. That word nation there in the Greek is the word ethnos from where we get our English word ethnicity. You can literally read that text as God created from one man, every ethnicity, every people group to live on all the face of the earth. Now that rules you out. That rules me out as far as taking credit for how I look. So not only is it nonsensical to look at your melanin level as virtuous, as, as if it has some inherent capacity to do anything, you, it's even stupider to take credit for it, as if you had anything to do with that. It's There's a lot, of play, a lot of questions I want to ask. Okay, um, <laughs> Mr. Darrell, you had mentioned, you know, social justice and uh, biblical justice. And I want to go back there because we know that's one of the foundations of God's throne. And that is everybody wants to work on social justice. Let's define there. What is the difference between a biblical justice and a social justice? Yeah, that's a great question, Sissy. And and we need to do a little bit of exegesis here again. Uh, You really have to dissect these terms uh, when you're looking at answering a question like this, because again, like we said earlier, justice is one of the most misused words uh, that's being thrown about today. But when you look at scripture, justice is equated with God's righteousness. You look in the Old Testament Hebrew, if you look up uh, justice in the Hebrew, what you'll find is by definition, justice is equated with God's inherent righteousness. So what, one way you can look at justice is, in, as far as defining it, Justice is doing right by God. Justice is to do right by God. That is a simple biblical definition of what justice is. Justice is to do right by God. But see, what happens today in terms of looking at social justice versus biblical justice, let me start with biblical justice. Biblical justice, by definition, is doing right regardless of the outcome. Searching for truth regardless of outcomes. That's how I would define biblical justice. Biblical justice is searching for objective truth, empirical truth, regardless of the outcome. Social justice is exactly the opposite. Social justice is subjective truth that leads to a certain outcome, toward the goal of achieving a certain outcome, okay? Subjective truth, malleable, mutable truth toward the goal of achieving a certain outcome. Let me give you an example from scripture would be 2 Kings chapter 3, where you have the situation there between King Solomon and the two women who came before him, each one of them arguing that the baby was theirs. Both of these women, it's literally there in the text, both of these women went to King Solomon in search of what? Justice. Now, King Solomon knowing, not not only was Solomon the wisest ever, he also knew that his fundamental responsibility was to be accountable to God to adjudicate that situation with justice, with righteousness, and do what is right. 
So what did King Solomon do? He's searching for the truth. So both of these women make their case. Solomon seeing what's going on here in his wisdom, he takes it to another level because it's still kind of muddy when you, when you see what each woman had to say and claiming that the baby was hers, it's still a little muddy. So Solomon goes and says, listen, he has one of his servants get bring me a sword. He says, well, what I'll do is I'll cut the baby in half. I'll cut the baby in half. Knowing this, he wanted to gauge what response he would get from these women, right? So we know how the story plays out. My point here is this. Solomon, in the end, he adjudicated this, this uh, situation with righteousness and truth. He was seeking the truth. He was not concerned about outcomes because each woman would have gone home with half of a dead baby. Solomon applied the truth to both of those women, knowing that one woman would go home with a baby and one woman would go home without one. He did what was right. And that's what we have to search for is seeking biblical justice. We should seek out that which is right and ob objectively right and true without regard to outcome. That's what God mandates his people do in that situation. I'll, I'll add to that this. Daryl just brilliantly unpacked biblical justice. And, and, and the, the fruit thereof is that the people who are under that rule enjoy the righteousness of God, Scripture says. We, we get to enjoy the beauty of God's righteous decree as intended through the, through the lens of government, as intended through the lens of church, as intended through the lens of, of family. When, when things are done righteously um, uh, from a standpoint of, of, of equity, equality, uh, not re with regard to specific outcome, the contrast of that is social justice, social justice. Now, on, on July 13, 2013, we had the Trayvon Martin case that, that unfolds, right? A six-woman a six, a six jury concluded, after having listened to all of the evidence in the George Zimmerman case with Trayvon Martin, and remember, through the lens of critical race theory, they first tried to make George Zimmerman a white man. See, because that, that, that was useful in their, in, in their power dynamic. So when, when that didn't work, they, they never revisited that component. They began to amplify the component of the person of color that they believed was oppressed in that situation. Now, after they listened to all of the evidence and were given three options, they were, they were given the option at the last minute of charging Zimmerman with second degree murder, finding him guilty of a lesser charge of manslaughter or not, or finding him not guilty. This jury comes to the conclusion that based upon all of the evidence that Zimmerman was not guilty. And because the folks who started uh, Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, Patrice Kalors, and Opal Tometi, did not like that outcome. Bingo. They began to cry for justice. Mm -hmm. And in their mind, justice had to do with a particular outcome that they desired in a particular instance. I could cite you case after case after case where this is how social justice plays itself out. See, what Virgil's bringing up here is another example where critical race theory should have been applied, but it wasn't. So if you really want to be fair, if you're a critical race theorist, if you really want to be fair, if you're going to try to investigate past uh, jurisprudence in America and try to find 
uh, loopholes where uh, ethnic prejudice was applied in those decisions, you have to do the same here as well. If you're really going to be intellectually honest about it, you have to investigate situations like the Trayvon Martin trial, the Breonna Taylor situation, uh, and, and others where uh, the police, uh, the offender wasn't charged. Uh, some of those instances involving police were based on the evidence there was found no basis to charge these individuals, and yet you still want to draw crowds in the thousands and the hundreds and march in the streets, vandalize people's personal property, drag people out of their private vehicles and beat them into comas. You want to roll through their neighborhoods and, with bullhorns and wake them up at 2 o'clock in the morning, all because you didn't like the outcome? And all of that done in the name of social Bingo. justice. Social justice. So what you look, Vir Virgil brings a brilliant point. So critical race theorists, if they want to be intellectually honest, you have to look at both sides of this, but they don't. So what happens with the social justification, they will argue, well, if we just deconstruct these institutions and systems, and Sissy, I will simplify it like this. Social justice thinks that it can bring about uh, uh, gospel fruit by working from the outside mm -hmm. in. That is, they will, they will deconstruct the institutions and the systems and just rebuild them through their own moral and ethical uh, 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 worldview that then we will see society, we will see unity, we will see harmony and all that kind of stuff. Social justice thinks it can create gospel fruit from the outside in. Biblical justice, though, works from the inside out. As, hard, as the Holy Spirit, uh, as God wills, regenerates our hearts and we submit ourselves to the authority of scripture and we obey his word, then that fruit is born in society, okay? So I'll just have your listeners, just think of it this way. Social justice is an outside-in approach, whereas biblical justice is an inside-out approach. And I love how you put that. Um, you know, when we, we talk about social justice and... And I, for time's sake, maybe you have some practical ways that we, you could fight in so or injustice, without compromising the truth. Um, but I think too, when they with social justice, they want to create this utopia. You talked about peace. You want right. to talk about unity. I just did a podcast on unity. I I think you did too. I I know I heard parts of it. Maybe you were a guest on somebody else's that we have this idea of unity, we have this idea of peace, and they want to create this utopia. Um, and it's just not, it's not possible until Jesus comes back. Only Jesus can do that. Sissy, I tell you, I can't put it any better than you just said it. I cannot put it any better than you just said it. I mean, listen, if, human, if humanity had the inherent capacity, which it doesn't, if humanity had the inherent capacity to bring about this kind of utopia, this, type, this, this kind of nirvana, it would have, we would have done it already. We would have done that already. But it doesn't reside within us. I love Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where God says, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. What in the world do we think has changed since then? Nothing. Nothing has changed. We are still the same wretches that descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3. So not only that, so not only do you have uh, a biblical harmoniology that you need to apply to humanity in that we are all innately sinful, 
Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, there is not a person on earth who always does good and who never sins. And that's outside of Romans 3.23, where we know for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to, this is what I mean when I say as Christians, we have to be better theologians. We can't just know what a verse says. We've got to know what it means by what it says so that we can apply it contextually to these issues that we're talking about here with you today. You're right. And that's what my uh, prayer is for this podcast. It would encourage people to dig deeper and go past you know, just that one verse. Let me add this to, and, and Daryl alluded to it with regard to Genesis three, because the question that you initially had was, you know, how do we fight back? How do we, how do we fight back against this? And then, and then to, to see things change. I, and, and, and you made the point, which was, this is not going to change until Christ returns. That's why we should have a, a, a beautiful hope in the return of our savior. Right. That's why we should have a, a heart that desires to see Christ's return, right? That's, that's where that should come from. That's how we should be, be, be drawn. I, I think about uh, uh, the fact that none of this is new. Daryl and I are always going back to the fact that this goes all the way back to Genesis, right? Genesis, he just quoted from Genesis 5. I'm going to quote from Genesis 3. This, what, what social justicians, especially evangelical social justicians, are believing is that they can create Utopia, And what they're falling for is the same lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden. When, 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 he, when, he, said, when he said, you know, do, do you not know that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God? That's the thought process. We're, we're believing that we can eat the fruit that the world is providing through false philosophies and, and false ideologies. And that, and, and that we can be like God and recreate God's, God's order uh, in our own image and likeness. That is the height of idolatry. So what we're doing when we're adopting these false ideologies, these false uh, philosophies, and bringing them into the churches, we're corrupting what God has already ordered. And see, not, not only are we corrupting it, verse, we're corrupting it because our minds are corrupted. We, right. we, we have the corrupt idea that we can go back, like you just said, Virgil, that we can go back and recreate what God created. But my point is this, is that Eden was just so perfect. Eden was so perfect. And then here we are thinking that we can, we, we can re- see, even in Eden, there were boundaries. Even in, even in perfection, there were boundaries. All right. God told them you can eat from every tree of the garden except this one. And ever since Adam and Eve ate from that one, we've still been trying to find that one tree. Hmm. And he is still going after that one tree that God told us you shall not eat from it. So even though Eden had boundaries, what we want today, right? What, what humanity wants and what society wants today, they don't want what Adam and Eve had. Adam and Eve had freedom, but they didn't have license. You see, there's a difference. Adam and Eve had freedom, but they didn't have license. What we want today is license. We want license to be able to do whatever we want with no boundaries whatsoever. And you're seeing that most evidently in the advancing of LGBTQ uh, freedoms and, and, and that are being codified into law under the banner of civil rights, uh, uh, the redefinition of marriage, where pretty much uh, any anyone can marry anyone else or anything if they want in some countries, but we want license. But see, this is Romans one. This is Romans one coming to fruition where God is giving us over 
to the sinful lusts of our heart. And we're seeing evidence of that every single day. And as you were talking about sin, I, I, I started thinking is I don't believe we understand the greatness of our sin. We don't. No, or the don't. holiness of God. We don't. Because then we start, we and this don't. would be a whole nother subject for another podcast, but to, we just don't understand his holiness because we wouldn't be asking, well, how could a loving God right. do that? And we don't understand God. And that's where I've been encouraging listeners lately to really study the Old Testament where you get to know God. We have a lot of churches who are neglecting the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but it's the Old Testament where you get to know the attributes of God, the heart, his plan for his people. And um, we just don't understand the greatness of our sin, because if we did, we wouldn't be having a lot of the discussions we're having today. I think you bring about great points, Sissy. Well, you have a lot of churches now just totally avoiding the Old Testament as if it doesn't even exist. You've got fewer and fewer pastors preaching sermons out of the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why. This is one, one reason why. Virgil, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but you, you can give me some cover. One reason why is because we have churches out here who are so secret sensitive. See, the secret the secret sensitive movement has not seceded. That that movement is still going on. So you've got churches here who are so they want to increase. They're so numbers driven. They're so celebrity driven. And with the prefer a uh, uh, proliferation of social media, you've got folks who call themselves pastors and ministers who are after that blue check mark. They want to get that blue check mark on Twitter, on Gab on Facebook. So what they're doing is they're preaching a, what I call a very soft gospel, a very soft gospel. So they, it's what I call hippie Jesus. So they have, they, they portray this image of hippie Jesus as if Jesus is just some long haired hippie who's uh, uh, walking along the coast of Santa Monica, California or San Diego, walking along the coast, just holding up a peace sign with wearing this flower wreath over his head instead of a crown of thorns is replaced with a wreath of flowers over his head. He's holding up a peace sign, just tossing rose petals along the, along the, the coast side saying peace, 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 love, 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 and everything like that. But see, when you look at scripture, the, one, the only attribute of God that's repeated three times in a row is that he's holy. he's holy. See, the Bible doesn't say God is love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. He's justice, 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 grace, grace, grace. No. In Revelation, what are the, what are the angels crying out? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. But see, we, we prefer to preach a hippie Jesus be, because we want those numbers. We want people to come in. Uh, we want people to feel welcome. Uh, we want people to feel uh, uh, un- unthreatened. Uh, we want people uh, who look like us so we can relate to them as opposed to uh, trying to relate to, to, to God, which we'll never be able to do as sinners perfectly in this life. But but that's what's happening. Since see, they're avoiding the Old Testament because they've, they've forgotten, if they ever believed it in the beginning, with that Jesus is God also. Jesus is not some extension of God. Jesus is God. So the, the holiness that God the Father innately has Jesus possesses that as well we see that in Hebrews where it says of Jesus that he is the exact replica of God the Father Colossians 1 15 Colossians 2 9 that in Christ in his body in his fleshly body dwelt the fullness of deity in bodily form so we've got to recap your a, a biblical Christology that recognizes Christ as God and as such, as inherently and innately uh, uh, possessing the same attributes as God the Father does and as does the Holy Spirit. And, you know, 
Jesus uh, speaking about a unity. He also says, I came to divide, <laughs> to, to yes. set the world on right. fire. And when we have this idea of yeah. Jesus, Jesus. And we were just talking, uh, yes, or yesterday I was interviewing John Cooper, another fan of y'all. Mm-hmm. I know, I know y'all. That's, love, right there. that's why it that's was really hard. Right I had to make sure I had a certain set of questions for him and a certain set for y'all, because I wanted to ask y'all all the same questions because him, we talked about this false idea of who Jesus was. And I said, I for, people forget that Jesus, you know, also to keep our eyes on heaven, that Jesus is coming back. My generation, I don't think we look at heaven and look at our hope as truly Jesus is to return and he's going to come back in his full right. glory and redeem us. Right. And that's the heaven. So as I've been listening, because I know as we get close to closing, you guys have encouraged us and you've shown us why it is so important to know the scripture. Because as y'all have uh, pulled out scripture here and there so we can recognize these, the false uh, ideologies that we're facing. It'll be so important to recognize, hmm, sounds good, but not quite. And this is why. And even Jesus himself used scripture to, uh, to defeat Satan. And it, it, I think back of when Jesus came into Jerusalem that last time and he wept over Jerusalem. And he said that you did not recognize if you had known Mm -hmm. the times. And it's like, we don't know the scriptures, so we can't recognize it in front of us and we can't recognize the lies in front of us. So I look at how if Jesus had wept, Mm -hmm. actually, I think some translations say he wailed Mm -hmm. over the city because we did not know, we did not recognize Mm -hmm. because it was written and we don't know what's written. Yeah. Um, Virgil and I have talked often on our uh, Just Thinking podcast about the sadness that we share personally over the the bi- biblical illiteracy that exists in the church today. And I think that is a primary factor in why a lot of these worldly philosophies and ideologies are being so embraced by the church is because we don't know what the scriptures say. So you, you don't, we don't know what the scriptures say. We don't know what the scripture means by what they say. And a lot of us just don't want to do the, I hate to say this, but a lot of us just do not want to do the hard work of being Bereans. We don't want to do the hard work of studying the scripture for ourselves. And it takes work. It takes work to do that. But, uh, but that's, that's a sad reality, I think, in the church. And, you know, Sissy, when you talk about uh, how we're able to be looking forward to the return of Christ, and especially how folks in your generation probably don't have that mindset, I think you're absolutely right. I, I appreciate you being transparent and saying that because I think you're right. They, we, th- th- there's a generation of people out there, professing Christians I'm talking about, who aren't looking forward to Christ coming back. And I think one reason for that is, is that they're holding this world so tightly that they don't want to let go of it. They do not want to let go of it. And I think we have to be honest and admit that. There are things about this world, about this life that many of us just do not want to let go. They've become idols to us. They've become idols to us. See, I don't need a little statue of Buddha on my desk to say I'm being an idolater. You know, biblical idolatry starts in here. Uh, I've always said you can tell what an idol is by how fast your heart beats when you see it or think about it. Well, and I think we're in a culture now that our idols are us, ourselves. Oh uh, yeah, me, myself, yeah, and we, I. Yeah, we like exactly our Instagram. Right. We like good pictures yeah. of ourselves. I'll say this in rap and just simply say, I love, I love where Daryl landed the plane because everything that we're seeing in culture militates against the idea that it is, it is, we are the sinners, right? 
what 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 the what culture is doing is saying no someone else has sinned mm-hmm. i'm i'm righteous what cult, what culture is saying is is everything else out mm-hmm. there is is wrong right. and 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 i'm yeah, i'm on, i'm man. all right right everything everything that i'm seeing i i see through this lens of of my perfected state uh, and, and, and their and their awful, horrible state. So we get virtue signaling and we get all of these ideas about righteousness and all of it is self-righteousness. Uh, it, it ignores the holiness of God. It ignores the personal sinfulness of our own lives. And Daryl and I are not uh, celebrities. We're not. We are sinful men mm-hmm. who, who, who understand and know our need for for the holy God yes. to send his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Uh, and that apart from the gospel, none of us have any any hope in, in, in the future. And so we we definitely need to bow the knee, repent of sin and place our full faith in the hope furnished to us through the father by his son, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a good one to end on. And I want to just tell both of you once again, thank you. Thank you for bringing up some of these tough issues. I want to encourage everybody that is listening, check out their podcast, Just Thinking. And thank you for always being laser focused on the scriptures. And you showed that even by example today, that you always have to take people back to God's word, our foundation. So thank you. Thank you for joining me and Daryl and Virgil on today's very special episode. Just want to encourage you to remember these are hard topics, but to really know and be educated on them. It's not always fun to talk about, but it's so important that each of us know God's word and what God's word says about these issues that we can talk to a secular world about them. Subscribe to their podcast, Just Thinking. You won't be sorry. And of course, I encourage you to subscribe to Fearless. God bless and have a great day. I wasn't given the spirit